entered. And I know from the, that there's quite a few people online as well. That's super welcome. As you know, my name is Eric Birch. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Um, so it's an interesting time we live today because the, when I grew up, the internet didn't exist. And I know for a lot of you, you're like, yeah, yeah. So the, uh, we had one TV, and it was black and white until I was in high school, and four channels, and Dad got to pick which one we watched. We didn't. Um, and so we spent most of our time outside, you know, because there was nothing to do inside. So unless it was raining, we were gone. You know, my, we had two rules, right? As soon as breakfast was done, you need to do your chores and leave. Because my mom didn't want you around the house, you know. And then the other rule was you had to be back in the house by 6, because that's when dinner was. 6.15, guess what? Next meal is breakfast. Um, there was no late dinners at our house. Unless, once we got into high school, it changed a bit because we had sports and work and stuff like that. But when we were young, we had this system. But we were never um, in the house. I mean, just very rarely were we in the house. And we would just go out and do stuff. Um, and there were some important things that we had when, when I was a kid, one of which is this. It's a multifunction pocket knife. Now, uh, I won't advertise specific brands, but the one I used to have had red sides. And <laughs> when I was in Scouts, there was always this contest to see who had the best knife. And the only rule we had was that you had to buy it. So you couldn't let, you know, your parents couldn't go down and buy you the one that had 60 gadgets, right? You had to do it yourself. So when I was eight, I had a paper route, and that's how I earned money, and I had a really nice knife. Um, and it's great because they do all sorts of stuff. Of course, at my age at that time, corkscrews weren't important, but they do have screwdrivers and uh, pliers and scissors, several different blades, uh, and the one I had had a toothpick and a pair of tweezers. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had the stuff. And then the other thing that everybody had was one of these, a buck knife. And that's probably the brand, but it's also what everybody knows it is. And it's for, um, shall we say, preparing meals, for those of you who are familiar with what a buck knife does. Um, and, the, um, and everybody had one of these, and it was you know, on your back pocket. I also had either a pellet gun or a 22 rifle with me. I didn't think I should bring that to church, but... The, uh, but with those things, we could do everything we needed to do. I mean, it was like you had it covered, right? And then when I got a vehicle, the only thing we had to add was duct tape and bailing wire. You know, you had a roll of duct tape and a roll of bailing wire, and you were set. You had everything you needed. And then when I got back from the Philippines, they had this totally new tool that came out called a multipurpose. And this is, um, again, this is a brand I won't mention, uh, but the same thing, it's got like big pliers and stuff like that. And so it was like the perfect attachment. And so the, um, whenever I go out, you know, outside into the, into the wilderness, you know, I have these things with me. And I have them in my pocket or in my sheath, right, where I could keep them. Now, why do you think I carry them? Yeah, I might need them. I might need them. More often than not, I don't, but I had them in case I need them. They're there. I can grab it whenever I want. It's convenient. So unfortunately, though, that's how some people treat God. God is this handy little tool in their pocket 
When I need him, I got him. Otherwise, just stay in my pocket. And that's where the church at Laodicea was. They had God in their pocket. They had everything taken care of by themselves. They were good. They didn't need God. But if they needed God, boom, they could go to him. He's in their pocket. So today's message I titled with a question. And that is a question we all need to ask ourselves. Is God in my pocket or is he in my life? Has God a place in my life that is first and foremost or do I put him there in case I need him? If I need a job, if I'm sick, if I get in an accident, if I'm having trouble with the kids, the wife and I had an argument, then I reach in my pocket and get out some God. But that's not how God is. God is not a tool for your pocket. So as you know, we're working through the book of Revelation. Uh, yes, singular. Um, and we've the, not addressing this book from an eschological point of view, right, or an end times point of view, because there's more flavors of that than you can shake a stick at. And, and I'm quite convinced that Wherever you stand eschologically will be okay, because I'm pretty confident I will be dead before that question comes up, so whether I'm right or wrong really doesn't matter. Um, and it's fun to have discussions with it, but it's not one of those fundamental beliefs of Christianity. We are going to talk about what is a fundamental belief, but that isn't one of them. So we've looked at six of the seven messages to the churches um, in, in Turkey. And as you recall, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of Turkey. And while he's there, Jesus comes to him in a vision and tells him that he needs to um, write down the things he sees and write down the messages that he's given. And so the, um, he functions as both a scribe and a narrator for these whole processes. And so we start out with these messages to the seven churches um, and these seven churches are, as you can see from the map here, physical churches that are in um, western Turkey. But they're also symbolic of the churches that we see throughout Christian history and even today. Our churches can mirror a lot of the same issues that we saw at these churches. And the, um, specifically, the, uh, today the church that we're going to talk about is the church at Laodicea is um, very similar to where we are in this country, I believe. Um, so let's say, well, what do we know about the churches, uh, the church at Laodicea? So it's important to look at this map here. You can see, we, here's Patmos, right? And then you see Ephesus, Sardis, Smyrna, Pergamon, and this, remember the messages go kind of in this clockwise flow, ending down here in the um, southeast with Laodicea. Now, it's important to realize that Laodicea was in a critical place. Notice that there's a valley that goes up this way. There's a valley that goes out here to Ephesus. This valley here is called the Lycus Valley. It goes up through, up to uh, Pergamum. And it's, it's a very, very rich, fertile valley. Um, and so Laodicea is like at this point of all these big trade routes. And so everything that's going to come in through here, through the Aegean Sea and through the uh, uh, Mediterranean, flows through into uh, Asia Minor. And so, so Laodicea is in a great place. Um, I'll put away the cat toy. The, um, <laughs> I love it, cats. Cats are strange creatures, that's for sure. Anyway, we'll continue. 
So anyway, they're, they're an intersection of all these really cool places that, that these trade routes come to, and so they're really, really wealthy folks. Um, they also have the great fertile land, and they raise a lot of sheep, and the sheep that they raise have this dark, silky, black wool. Um, and it's world-renowned. People all over the world want this wool to build garments because it's just such beautiful material. Um, also, the, the, um, because they're in the center of these trade routes, they're very big on banking. And so they have lots of gold and all sorts of other wealth that surrounds them. Um, they also have a famous medical school. And this medical school has been famous for two significant things. One, um, they have this um, ointment for treating hearing loss. It's made with spices and this stuff called nard. Nard is kind of a weird stuff, but it's made out of the, the um, part of a flower of a plant that grows in Asia. Um, and it's got a big Latin name, I don't remember, so we'll just call it nard. And um, then they also had this eye ointment that was made with what they called Fijerian powder and oil. And it was supposed to be able to relieve um, eyes and, and restore sight, right? And so the other thing that's important to realize is that Laodicea was founded in about 3 BC primarily with people coming out of Syria and Jews out of Babylon. When they were being released out of Babylon, that's who the city was. There's, a, I forget his name, Antiochus or something like that that built the city. But he, that's how he populated the city. So there were people there that were Jewish descent and were familiar with Jewish law and Jewish structure. Um, the biggest shortcoming for Laodicea was water. They had a very unpredictable water supply. Um, and so the, uh, even though they were at this, in this valley, the water was dependent upon rains in the mountains, something we can be very familiar with living here in the southwest. Um, but they had a very unpredictable water supply. And it's interesting, as we see the letter that Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea, he uses those very things they think are gifts, or not even gifts, they just think they've earned, as a way of pointing out to them where they've fallen short. Um, and it's interesting when you look at this letter, he has nothing good to say about the folks at Laodicea, right? And we looked at many of the other letters, and it usually starts out with, this you've done really well, but this I have against you. Well, these there is no good. In fact, Sardis is kind of the only other one that kind of has that in it. But this one is really direct. So let's start with uh, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation God says. So this is kind of an interesting way to start. The, the beginning part to the angel of the church, that we know is the way that all the letters started. And we think the angel of the church is probably the head pastor, or it could be a guardian angel of the church, but they start that way. But then this, this first sentence goes into a very different structure. And so he calls him the Amen. Um, now, in Old Testament and Judaism, amen had a very specific meaning. Something that you said amen to was something that you knew was trustworthy, that you could believe. It was valid and binding. You know, we end our prayers with amen, and what we're saying is, is that I believe, God, you will honor this prayer. I can trust you, God, for this prayer. Amen. Right? That's what that means. So, Jesus introduces himself this time as the Amen, 
And then to, to add emphasis to that, he says the faithful and true witness. Now, the reason why he says the faithful and true witness is because Laodicea is the exact opposite. They are untrustworthy, and they are not a witness to God at all. They're all caught up in themselves. They're very happy with where they're at, and they think it's up to them that they got there. So they're not giving God any credit for this. And then he continues on, the beginning of the creation, the beginning of the creation of God says this, and the beginning of the creation um, is this reference that we see before, we see it in, in um, Colossians uh, 1.15 when Paul references and he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that's important to recognize because this is the first place in Revelation where we see the implicit suggestion that Jesus Christ is always existed, right? So we have this 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 parallel that, or not parallel, this uh, offset that's being made between Jesus, who's the firstborn, the trustworthy, the loyal, the everything, to Laodicea that isn't. Now, Colossae is just about nine miles away from Laodicea, so there's no question they would have been familiar with the letter written to the Colossians. So they understand what's being said to them um, through this message. All right. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now this has a lot of kind of neat things going with it. There's some really important context um, of where this hot and cold come from, from both the physical realm as well as the spiritual realm. First of all, from the physical side, um, there's a town named Heropolis, which is within six miles uh, to the north of Laodicea, and they have these hot springs, and they're mineral-rich hot springs. And so people go there for physical healing. You know, if you've ever been in a hot mineral spring, you know how good that feels, right? I mean, there's nothing like a hot tub, especially like when it's really cold out, you know, and you just kind of boil away, you know, and you know, all your joints start to move again and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we love a hot spring. They're really nice. And, and so to the, to the north of Laodicea is this hot spring. And the um, water, is it, as it flowed out of Heropolis down toward Laodicea, would cool. And as it cools, the minerals would start to fall out. And in fact, there was a broad escarpment just near um, Laodicea that was about a mile wide and about 300 feet tall that was covered in this sort of slimy mixture of limestone and sulfur. And that was this water having cooled down, these minerals precipitated out and coated this area with this sort of nasty stuff. And this water that came out of that, you couldn't drink. If you drank it, it would taste nasty, right? I mean, you don't drink from a hot spring, you sit in it. Well, I hope you don't drink from it. The, uh, but anyway... The, uh, but you wouldn't drink from it. So anybody that made the mistake to think this water coming down from Heropolis toward Laodicea could be drink, would drink it and they would spit it out. It would be gross. You wouldn't want it. Right? And then south of um, Laodicea is Colossae. And Colossae was the opposite. Colossae had beautiful spring waters that were cold and clear and refreshing when you were thirsty. They were great waters to drink. Um, and so he's saying to them, he says, you guys are in the middle. You're not hot and mineral refreshing to the body. 
like the waters in Heropolis, and you're not cool and refreshing to the thirst like the waters in Colossae. No, no, you're in the middle. I don't want you for anything. I can't drink you, and you're not refreshing. You're not spiritual healing. You're nothing. There's nothing good about you. And the important part is because Laodicea wasn't, they weren't hot or cold. It wasn't like they were full of pagans, cold to God, completely unknowing. No, they knew God. Again, remember, their background is Jewish. They're familiar. The church was established there. They know God, but they're not hot. They're not fervent for him. They kind of put God in their pocket. They don't need him. They got everything. They got money. They got black wool. They got all this stuff. They don't need God. So they put him out of the way. Verse 17. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness would not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I mean, clearly the, the, the irony of verses 17 and 18 toward what they think they have is, is overwhelming, right? The very things they think that make them great are the very things... Um, that their issues are. So they're secure in their own physical affluence, but they're unaware that in reality they're spiritually wretched, poor, blind, naked. And the worst part is the Laodiceans think it's theirs, that they did it. They didn't need God. They did it all on their own. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. They have everything they need, and they don't need God. They keep them in their pockets, just like a pocket knife. It's like, hey, God, we got this. If I need you, I'll let you know. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people are today. God isn't first and foremost. They pick and choose what they like, what they don't like. We're going to get into some more details in a bit here. But it's really surprising to me that that, that so many people take this mixed-mode God. I'll keep the parts of God I like, and I'll let go of the parts I don't like. You know, I get to pick. And that's not how this works. The Laodiceans, the Laodiceans felt that they were secure in their spiritual attainment because they had been successful financially. We read in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 20, and he told them a parable, saying, The land of the rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So again, this, this farmer has been very, very productive, and he says to himself, I have been very productive. In fact, I've been so productive that I'm going to tear my barns down to make room for more stuff, not realizing that his life isn't driven by him, but driven by God, and that God will call him for an accounting. 
And it's really easy in the world today to see things that way. We are very material in this country. We're big uh, materialistic in this country. We're big on stuff. How many people, oh, I won't show my hands, how many people have bought something only to realize the new version of something just came out? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm supposed to get a new iPhone from work. I don't know what number it is because I don't know what's the current number. You know, I mean, iPhones are kind of weird. It's like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I think there's a 13 now. You know, I, it's, it's, and, and, and they do stuff like a, I, I, I don't do that with a cell phone. I'm like, it calls, right? And email, we're good. I mean, I, a friend of mine still had a flip phone and they couldn't get another flip phone. He was so mad that he had to get a, a phone, a smartphone. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we're just so into that. We have TVs that got to do everything, right? Um, my, my kids, my grandkids, they all have these cell phones and uh, this other thing, I forget, it's a Wii something or other where the handles come off so you can do stuff and, and a switch. Thank you. Yes, that's what it is. Um, and, and, and they've got like, and then they've got like all these tablets. They've got all, and, and Gracie's three. And she picks up an iPad and, and I'm like, Gracie, what you doing? I own my TikTok. I'm like, excuse me? Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, and the, the kids were off for fall and, and uh, fall break. And I said, Guys, let's go do something. We are. No, you're not. You're playing on those stupid TV things. Let's go out and do something. Let's throw a ball. Let's go, you know, go do something. Eh. Like, I mean, when I was a kid, I'm so glad the Internet didn't exist when I was a kid. I mean, I learned to hunt and fish and all that sort of stuff. They don't do any of that stuff anymore. Um, you know, I, I, it's funny. I talked to them about that. Well, let's go target shooting. It's a game. Yeah, you pull up this game, and you, I'm like, that's not target shooting. You know, anytime you, you want to be able to shoot something and eat it, you know, it's like, <laughs> I just, it's, you know, it's, it's weird. Only Remington is the only one that's into hunting like animals and stuff, you know, and he's always like, he, he's like me, he likes dove and, and the, uh, the, uh, and so the, uh, but it's, it's, it's sad today because people, they're caught up in so much stuff and it's not just the kids, the adults are the same way. I mean, I won't ask for a show of hand of how many of us are Amazonaholics. You know what that means, right? The box shows up and you're uncertain what's in it. You order so much. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we, we become this, this whole consumer. And, and, and it's, God's become a sideshow, right? He's not the priority in our lives. It's like, well, when we get there, you know, people are like, oh, God, yeah, yeah, that's that Sunday thing, you know. Um, so anyway, the Laodiceans um, have made that mistake. And they pride themselves on their financial worth, their extensive textile industry, this ISAB that, you know, is exported around the world and, and helps people see. Um, but the things they're confident in, they, they, they need, is the very things that they are, in fact, got backwards. They were indeed poor. They needed to buy from Christ gold refined by fire so they would be genuinely rich. Now, we read many places in Scripture, gold refined by fire talks about that process that you go through the refiner's fire. And if you're familiar with the way gold is mined, 
they'll, they'll get this gold dust that, that they collect and they'll mix it with flux, which is a material that binds to the impurities, and then they heat it all up. And as it heats up, the pure gold falls out and this flux captures all the impurities. But it has to be heated to this high temperature. And so when we talk about being spiritually refined, that means you're going to go through hard times. You're going to have to learn to persevere. You're going to have to go through difficult discipline. That's that process of getting refined, truly refined by fire. You can't rely on yourself for that growth. You're not going to grow on your own. You have to put your life, so to speak, in God's hands and allow him to refine you. And that's not a pleasant experience, and it's really tough to do when life is good. Right? It's interesting times when things are like going really smooth, I'm like, okay, what's coming next? You know, it's like this has been too good. Something's happening. Something's getting ready to come up. Um, and that's how we should grow. We shouldn't look at it with fear. It's how we grow. It's how we get better. You know, it's interesting when you ask God for something, hey, what do I need to work on? What do I need to fix? Be careful, because he might answer. You know, <laughs> it's... Um, so God has to be first and for, foremost in our life. He can't be in our pocket. He can't be an afterthought. Um, the other part is interesting. The Laodiceans needed white clothes to cover the shame of their nakedness. Now, remember, they're, they're famous for this black wool that's just everybody wants to have, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful, but it's black. And he says, no, you need to get white garments. Now, white garments throughout Scripture we know for righteousness. And purity, right? Boy, I thought it was interesting that the blood of Christ can wash you white. I mean, that's special blood, because trust me, I've been around a lot of blood, and it don't make you white. So that spiritual blood that makes us white is what he's talking about. They need to be made righteous and clean. And, and nakedness is a, a symbol of judgment and humiliation. Remember Isaiah walks around naked for three and a half years pre predicting or prophesizing the, the fall of the uh, Jewish church to, to the Assyrians. Um, there's also in um, uh, David's servants, uh, when they, get, they go to see, um, what's his name, Hanari, uh, he cuts off the back of their gowns to expose their buttocks. Because that's a form of, of shame and embarrassment. Um, and it's interesting, I, but the Old Testament is not unusual for the, the captives of a, of a battle to be stripped and walk back naked as a form of shame and embarrassment. And he's telling Laodicea, you guys are naked. You think you're clothed really richly, you're not. You're naked. You lack righteousness. You need to clothe yourself in the white robe of righteousness. Now, it's almost humorous because the cause of their problem is blindness, and yet they're well known for this medical school that makes this eye ointment that helps people see. So once again, they're on the physical side of this, they're missing the spiritual side of this. They're blind to all their issues that they have because they haven't focused on God. They focused on all these other things. And so the spiritually blind have left them naked and poor and pitiful and wretched. We read in John chapter 9, verses 39 to 41, 
And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. The Pharisees are caught up in self-righteousness. They think they've got it all figured out, right? I mean, they're tithing in the smallest amounts of their spices, but they're blind to the truth. And yet Jesus is saying, no, if, if you acknowledge that you're blind to the truth and accept Jesus Christ, he will open up your eyes and you will see the truth. So the blind will see, and those who think they see will remain blind and in sin. And that's where the Laodicean church is. They're blind to the truth. They're caught up in their own selves. They're missing God, and therefore they're blind to the truth. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, God's discipline is a form of love. Anybody who's a parent and has raised kids knows that we discipline our children because we love them, because we care about them, we want what's best for them. We know that if they aren't disciplined, if they aren't guided, that they won't go in the right direction. And God is the same way. And he wants us to repent. He wants us to accept our discipline and grow in righteousness. We read in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And discipline is often unpleasant at the time. Um, I remember growing up, by, uh, at, this is obviously back a while ago, but we had the Board of Education. Um, and that's what they, uh, if you didn't obey at school, that's what happened. You would get the um, educated uh, about the process. And, and I remember um, one of our principals, uh, Father O'Rourke, had this one, and it was like aerodynamic. It like tapered so that he could keep the speed up going through it. And, uh, and my father was the same way. My father was big on discipline. Now, I'm not saying that that's the right method, but the coin of it is, is that discipline was often painful physically painful, um, but it's also today it's painful. There's a lot of things we go through that are heartbreaking, whether it's physical or not, and there's things we have to learn and grow through. And nobody likes it. I know we don't like that verse in James, right? Consider it joyful when you go through suffering. No, thanks. I just skip the suffering. You know, no, it's not how it works, right? Um, and, and, but that's how, that's how it works. God, God's going to, you're going to suffer in order for, for you to grow. And if you submit to that suffering, which is the point here, if you submit to that suffering and grow through it, you'll become stronger. You know, there's a, there's a great book by uh, Max Lucado called On the Anvil. And it talks about how um, a blacksmith gets a tool that's broken. And he has to put it into the fire and heat it up. And then he puts it on the anvil and he pounds it back into shape so that it's useful again. And we're like that. God takes us when we're broken, puts us in the fire, puts us on the anvil, and pounds us back into shape. Then we can become useful for God in righteousness. But we choose whether we want to yield or not. Just like the tool can either yield to the blacksmith's hammer 
and be made into a useful tool, or it won't. It'll crack, or it won't shape. And it's discarded because it can't be used. But if it yields and allows itself to be remolded, then it can become useful again. But the process of being put in the fire and hammered into shape is an unpleasant one. But it's one we need to go through if we're going to become all that God wants us to be. All right. Verse 20 is an interesting verse. It's been misinterpreted uh, many times. And so verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. Now, often that people think that this verse is talking to unbelievers, that, that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and if you open the door, he'll, you know, he will come in with you. But it isn't. In the context of this, written to the church at Laodicea, he is talking to believers. And in the context of the, of the first century church, to come in and dine with someone was a, a sign of respect and relationship. You enjoyed the fellowship of meals with people. If you recall, the first century church was big on meals. That's why we're so big on meals, because we're devout. The, uh... <laughs> so, but it was a big thing to be invited into someone's house and to share a meal with them. It was a big thing. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I open the door and let me in and dine with you. Let me have that relationship with you. God wants to be in the life of the Laodiceans, and he wants to be in our life. God is not an insurance policy. He's not a pocket knife. He doesn't just sit there in case I need him. He wants to be in relationship. But in blind self-sufficiency, they had stuck God in their pocket, unaware that they were spiritually rich, pitiful, blind, and naked. And unfortunately, too many people do that today. We ignore the truths of Scripture and rely instead on this perverse worldview that exists today. And we have a strange world today. I mean, I, I, I spent half an hour yesterday fruitlessly arguing with someone who's a member of QAnon. I was like, how could you believe such things? Anyway, um, so it, the results of a recent Barnard study shows just what I mean. For those that are unfamiliar, George Barnard is like the Gallup poll of Christianity, right? So he's polling people all the time to understand kind of where, where are Christians today? Where do they land with what they believe and whatnot? So of the group that he polled, 69% of those self-identified as Christians. Now significantly, seven or eight years ago, the last time this was done, it was 78%. I remember uh, giving a message where I gave out that number that 78% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. Today, that number is 69%. Now, 35% of those polls self-identified themselves as born-again Christians. 28% of those polls self-identified themselves as evangelical Christians. 28% of those polls self-identified theologically as um, uh, born-again Christians, 6% of those polled self-identified as integrated disciples. That is, based on their answers, they possessed a biblical worldview. And I'll explain what that means here in a minute when I say 6%. So 69% sounds like a pretty big number. Again, it's down from where it was, but that's roughly 7 out of every 10. So, not surprisingly, amongst that 69%, 79% believe that God has a reason for everything. 
77% says they have a unique God-given calling. 74% say they intentionally try to avoid sinning because they know it hurts God. 62% agree that the universe was designed and created and it is sustained by God. Excellent. 61% believe that God is an all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, and just creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. All good. But the same group has a wide range of perspectives that are not in harmony with biblical teaching. For instance, among their errant perspectives most widely embrace, 72% argue that people are basically good. Obviously, they've never raised children. Um, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I didn't have to teach my kids to disobey. They figured it out all on their own. 71% considers feelings, experiences, or the input of friends and family the most trusted source of moral guidance. That's scary. 66% um, say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. Again, these are people, 69%, that have identified themselves as Christian. 64% um, say that all religious faiths are of equal value. 58% believe that a person is good enough or does enough good things they can earn their way into heaven. 57% believe in karma. 52% claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual that there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. Yeah, more than half of those people that, de that accept themselves as being Christian says there are no moral uh, absolutes. That is really scary. Again, you can't put God in your pocket and just live however you want. That's not how this works. That's not what Christianity is. There are truths as Christians. We're all sinners in need of forgiveness. The only path to forgiveness and eternal life with the Father is in accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and the sacrifice of Calvary. Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other way. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. Every bit of it. You can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible you like and what parts of the Bible you don't like. Really doesn't matter what version you're reading. The bottom line, it's his inspired word. One of the things that, that to me was just really scary was that 58% um, contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, and purity. Excuse me? The Holy Spirit, that's that indwelled person of God that guides you in the truth of Scripture and in communion with the Father and the Son. He's real. If you don't know them, we should talk. <laughs> I mean, how can you say the Holy Spirit is just fictitious? It's really scary. The Holy Spirit is that person of the Godhead that indwells each believer and guides us. We should all sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is the absolute standard for moral truth. There is no other truth.
Again, we say God is truth, not God is truthful. Because truthful means that I reference something else that has truth, and I compare it. Uh Uh-uh. Everything refers to God. He is truth. He is the absolute standard. And the church in Laodicea has forgotten all of this and have put those truths aside. Verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, verse 21 is purely eschatological, meaning it's referencing what will happen in the end times. When we, the second coming, those who believe will sit with the Father and the Son in heaven. We will all be there with the Father and the Son. And he concludes in verse 22 kind of in the same manner that he did the other ones with his exhortation to hear what the Spirit is saying. Again, the whole point of this is as we read through the book of Revelation, there is changes in our priority that we have to do so that we can be where Jesus wants us to be. And we do that because we, get, we receive that message from the Holy Spirit telling us this is what needs to change. These are where your priority needs to be adjusted. So we see in these messages to the seven churches the dangers that we all face. Right? In Ephesus, losing our first love. In Pergamum, compromising the truth of biblical doctrine. In Thyatira, compromising the truth of biblical morality. In Sardis, being spiritually dead. In Philadelphia, failing to persevere. And in Laodicea, selling for a lukewarm relationship with Jesus. These are as much a danger today as they were in the first century church. We all have to be on guard against these very same things. We're all struggling with the same things. Every generation loses the gospel, and every generation is the one responsible for getting it back. We are the evangelical church. We have the responsibility to send the message of truth to the body, to the world. It's not something we can put to anyone else. It's our responsibility. We are of this generation. That message has to go to our friends, our family, you know, our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. I saw one of my grandkids is watching online, um, which is cool because that probably means my great-grandkids are too. <laughs> so, the one thing I love about the whole video thing is that I get family all over the place. They don't have to be in town, so... All right, well, I want to close with uh, Matthew 6, uh, verses 25 through 33. Pretty well-known verses here. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who are you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, so they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, 
Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek God first. Make him your priority. Do not put him in your pocket. God, we're just so grateful for who you are, for all the things that you do for us. And we ask you, Lord, to, to, to turn on that light, that, that spotlight in our lives, those things that we've not given to you, those places that we have not uh, surrendered to you, those things that we still hold on to ourselves, those places that, that, that we have not given you um, sovereign control over. Um, and help us to identify those, Lord, and to surrender those. Help us to put you first and foremost. Help us to make you the centerpiece of our life. We just thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.